Well, tonight um, we are going to actually be in the book of Jonah. Last week we started um, going through the book of Jonah by not actually going to the book of Jonah. Uh, we looked um, at when Jonah was written, uh, why we as a church even bother to study Old Testament books. Some people would ask, why not just stick to the New Testament? Uh, but we tried to go over the value and the importance of studying Old Testament books. We looked at what our main goal is in the study of Jonah, and we looked at Jonah's ministry before God, God called him to go to Nineveh. And tonight we are actually going to be in Jonah, and we're going to be looking at the first three verses of chapter 1. A few weeks ago, we were at home, and uh, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, Kristen, Kristen was working. Our oldest daughter, Ramsey, is in this habit of taking all the pillows off of our couch couches and putting them on the floor and so she had done that and she had arrayed them into this bed she calls it a pool couch I don't know why but she had made a pool couch in the floor and it was time to go to bed and so I said Ramsey you need to pick up those pillows and put them back on the couch so we can go upstairs and go to bed she responded and I don't know where she learned this she put both hands defiantly on her hips <laughs> cocked one hip out looked me dead in the eye and said I'm not doing it and rolled her eyes <laughs> her response to my clear command of what I expected her to do was eerily similar to Jonah's response to God's clear command of what he was supposed to do and much like Jonah Ramsey was disciplined just not with a big fish um but she was disciplined because there was a sense in which I knew that she understood what I was asking her to do. I knew she was capable of doing what I asked her to do. And if she would begin the process, I would pitch in and help finish the task. In much the same way as God called Jonah, and we look at it tonight to go to the Ninevites, Jonah with his heart and with his attitude and with his actions essentially does what my three-year-old daughter did to me, puts his hands, I don't know if he put his hands on his hips and cocked his hip, one hip out. I don't know if Jonah did that or not, actually. But Jonah displays a heart attitude of disobedience. And so what I want us to begin to understand tonight, as we look at these first three verses of Jonah, is why Jonah even had this response in the first place. Last week we talked about if you, if you take the Bible and you map it out on a, on a timeline in chronological order, you can understand the history of the Bible, but you can miss the texture and the depth and the beauty of the scriptures if you don't understand that they're not primarily meant to be understood on a chronological timeline. They're meant to be understood and interpreted in the person and work of Christ. And so it is that even when we read stories that don't involve Jesus, especially Old Testament stories, because there's such a gap in time and there's such a gap in culture, what we end up doing is we end up flattening out the characters of the Bible. We rob them of their humanity. We rob them of trying to understand their motives for either obedience or disobedience. And often the reason that we do that is because we want to read the scripture and say, I would never do that. And so tonight we want to feel the weight of the fullness of Jonah's humanity so that we could begin to see and understand our own human responses to God's call on each of our lives and also begin to pull back just the very edge of the curtain to understand just how merciful God was to Jonah and how merciful God 
is to us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that you, through the inspiration of the Spirit, caused men to write the books of the Bible down. And you've preserved them. And you've given us a richness in our ability to know you through your word. So, Father, I pray that we wouldn't take it for granted. I pray that we wouldn't read it like any other book we engage with, because it's not any other book we engage with. It's powerful. It's living. It's active. And more often than not, if we will sit and engage with it, not as a book to be read or a check mark beside our daily to-do list, but if we will sit and engage with it as your living word, what we often find is that as we read your scriptures, the Holy Spirit reads us and exposes our sin and confirms us in our struggles towards obedience. studied and prayed and sought how best to help us now here understand what was going on in the world of men like John. Will we be good stewards of your word so that we would love you more and would love others more and we would give our lives for the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. John 1, 1 through 3, this is what word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out or preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Have you ever had a life-defining moment? Have you ever had an experience that you look back on and wonder what life would have been like if it had never happened or if it had happened differently? I believe at some point we all have those moments, and I've often wondered, and I wondered it even this week as I was getting ready for tonight, if Jonah had similar thoughts as he looked back on his life, and especially as he considered the day that the word of the Lord came to him concerning Nineveh. I was, we were in here setting up, and I was telling those who were in here helping get set up, I said, I feel like I've learned more about the book of Jonah and getting ready for just the first three verses than I've ever known about this book in my entire life. And so last week, I stood up here, and, and I had um, The Prodigal Prophet by uh, Tim Keller, and the name of Anthony Carter's book is escaping me uh, right now. But I offered those as two good supplements uh, to read as we go through Jonah. Can I also just lobby you, and I don't have one with me because they're huge and I was not carrying it up here. Can I, can I just maybe make a, a strong suggestion that you get a really good study Bible? It's incredible what you can learn if you'll just sit down and read a few pages of Scripture and then read the introduction to the book, read through the study notes that are in the book. The NIV Study Bible and the ESV Study Bible are great resources. And for the most part, they're relatively cheap. Ollie's, I think, has like 15,000 NIV Study Bibles right now for real cheap. Um, But there's something about your own ability to sit and wrestle with what the text is saying rather than waiting 
for me to stand up or whoever's going to preach to stand up and just say, here's what I think you should believe about this text. It's also helpful if you have tools and the means to sit down and study the word on your own. And so I would just really encourage you, not that you have to do Bible, uh, in-depth uh, study Bible reading in your morning devotions, but it is in incredible how much you can be aided in your understanding of the scriptures and your love for what God has contained in them and even your appreciation for who Jesus is and what he has done just by taking a few moments to read some study notes. And so I'll just encourage you in that. Now back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Up until this moment when the book of Jonah opens, from what we know at least, Jonah has been by Old Testament standards a successful prophet. And we know that primarily because we only know one thing about Jonah up until this point. And it's from 2 Kings 14, 23 through 29 that we looked at last week. And there we saw that it was Jonah who gave direction to Jeroboam II concerning the restoration of Israel's borders during a time when the kingdom of Israel, in all honesty, should have been preparing for the judgment of God to arrive at the doorstep of the kingdom. But God had been merciful and God had been gracious even to Israel in their disobedience and extended them mercy by allowing the borders to be reestablished. And now, though some time has passed, and God brings another word to Jonah. This time, as it says in Jonah 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. This time, Jonah gets the call from God to go to Israel's enemies in Nineveh and preach against them and their wicked ways. At the time that Jonah is called to go, brief, let's briefly take a history lesson here because it will help appreciate the, the richness of the text. A century before Jonah is on the scene, Assyria is a thorn in the side of Israel. Assyria is constantly probing into the northern kingdom of Israel to figure out where the weak spots are, to try to overrun and raid the kingdom and take over cities here and there. In the century that passes before Jonah shows up and while Jonah's on the scene, Assyria has kind of faded from political, geopolitical dominance. They've stopped their expansionistic policies. They've pulled everything back inside their own kingdom, and they are working to fortify their own kingdom to make another push towards dominance in the ancient East. And so when Jonah is called to go preach against the city of Nineveh, they are not currently a threat to the nation. They have been an pain to the nation of Israel in the century prior. But at the moment that Jonah receives the call to go, Nineveh is not a pressing concern. The threat was always there, and the threat kind of hung out there, but there was no real concern on Israel's part or Jeroboam's leadership that Assyria was going to be a problem. So I'm not sure about you, but if God gave me the chance to go to certain people in my life or in my past and gave me the chance to preach against them, I would take it. And I'd probably go overboard, no pun intended, Jonah. And I would probably end up needing to repent of my own zeal at the pending demise of my enemies. I definitely wouldn't run the other way, but that's exactly what Jonah does. Why? 
why, if you're Jonah, do you run from the opportunity to go deliver the last note of judgment to your enemies? To go preach against a nation or a city was to announce the coming judgment of God. Most of the time, Old Testament prophets were raised up to preach against the wickedness and the evilness of the nation of Israel or of the kingdom of Judah. Jonah gets a rare opportunity to go to the source of the enemy's empire and preach against them the coming judgment. And he runs as fast as he can the other way. In order to understand why he runs away, you've got to understand another prophet who was active during the time of Jonah. Jonah, there were contemporary prophets of Jonah who were prophesying, whose words are recorded in Scripture, and one of those is Hosea. And Hosea prophesied not about the impending judgment of another nation. Hosea prophesied about the impending judgment that was coming for Israel. Here are three prophecies I want to show you from Hosea that Jonah and the Israelites would have been familiar with when Jonah got the call to go to Nineveh. Here they are. Hosea 9.3, they, meaning the Israelites, shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat uncleaned food in where? Assyria. Hosea 10.6, the thing itself, the golden calf of beth Avin, shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Hosea 11.5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. If you read those three, now do you see why Jonah ran the other way? It's one thing to get to go and preach the pending destruction of your enemies. It's another to go preach a message that will lead to repentance and a stay of punishment for your enemies. Jonah is being called to preach against a people God desires to pardon so they can in turn be the instruments by which Israel is punished for their idolatry and disobedience. Perhaps you and I would have ran as well. Jonah realizes, I'm going to go preach. God's going to be merciful. And I'm going to come back. And then they're going to come. And there's going to be loss of life. There's going to be loss of property. There's going to be loss of identity. There's going to be a caravan of us who, if we survive, are going to be carried into exile. I'll run. I'll run rather than be obedient and come back and have the weight of what I know is going to happen resting on my shoulders. All of a sudden, if you, in just a few other prophecies from Hosea, you begin to feel I hope, at least a little bit of mercy and understanding about Jonah's initial response. Imagine if you were to put yourself in Jonah's shoes and the Lord came to you and asked you to go preach against an enemy of your families or an enemy of the U.S. And in going and being obedient, 
you begin to realize that that nation or that enemy was going to repent, that God was going to relent, and that they were going to be used by God as a means of punishment and discipline for your own sinfulness. It becomes a heavy thing that Jonah's wrestling with in a moment as he's sitting there minding his own business and the word of the Lord comes to him. And so what does it say in Jonah 1.3? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to, give, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah, without really any hesitation, gets up and heads to Joppa to sail for Tarshish. Jonah's destination is in the exact opposite direction of where God called him to go. Nineveh was roughly 500 miles northeast of Israel. It's in, it was in the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. They've excavated it. There has been a ton of archaeological finds there that have helped scholars and biblical scholars and other scholars understand what was going on in the Assyrian Empire during the time of Jonah. Jonah was headed to Tarshish, which exact location is and was unknown. However, there are those who believe that it could have been, in its most extreme case, a city on the Atlantic coast of Spain. He wasn't just going to the next town over and hunkering down, waiting for all this to pass. He was making a beeline for the far edges of the known world to escape his responsibility and the Lord's presence. Perhaps if he delayed, the Assyrians would end up not repenting and they would indeed face judgment and perish rather than being the instrument of God's discipline and judgment of Israel. Or perhaps God would raise up another prophet to go to Nineveh and preach against it. But at least Jonah would not have to live with the overwhelming burden of being the prophet responsible for preaching and seeing the Assyrians repent. Now as we read the verse of Jonah's flight and his desire to, free, to flee the presence of the Lord, there is a certain sense of tragic folly to what he does. It's tragic because of Jonah's blatant disobedience to the Lord. Proverbs 14, 12 says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. This is the tragedy of Jonah's disobedience is it seems right to Jonah, but it's going to lead to death. It's also the euphemism, if you pay attention to verse 3, that says he went down to Joppa and he went down into the ship. Going down in the Old Testament, going down into a place was always a euphemism for death. Every step away from the Lord in disobedience was a step closer to death for Jonah. And it's going to play out until he goes down into the sea and into the belly of the great fish. And it's foolish because Jonah actually thinks he can escape the presence of God. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and Jonah's about to find that out, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light of Mount B be night, 
Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah's line of thinking is that Joppa was just outside of Hebrew control. And therefore, God would be struck blind and unable to see beyond the geopolitical boundaries of Israel, which Jonah felt like created the perfect opportunity for his escape. Not only that, but fleeing to Tarshish, according to Jonah's logic and the way he's processing all of this, should be far enough away from Israel that the Lord should give up on him. You get the sense, Jonah, at this point, does not care one bit if the Ninevites are ever preached against or not. He just wants out. And this is the tragic folly of Jonah. The tragedy of his disobedience and the folly of his thinking that there is somewhere he could go in heaven or in the sea or under the earth where he could escape the presence of God. And the ease with which we can fall into this way of thinking, even here today in our modern world of 2019, is quite surprising. Our culture is one that despises imposed authority. It prizes personal autonomy, and it celebrates those who only do what feels good and makes them happy. This, is the atti this attitude is pervasive in the hit songs and movies and television shows of our day, and it even influences the way companies market their products to us, whether we are 75 or 45 or 25 or five years old. And it's more pervasive in the church than even we would like to admit. There is a steady stream of preaching and teaching that works its way in and through the church that says, don't let anyone, don't even let the scriptures impose authority on your life. You need to live your truth as you understand scripture. And you have a free pass to only do the things that you really want to do that make you feel good about yourself. And in lockstep with Jonah in the first three verses of chapter 1, we display the same tragic folly in our own lives. Abraham Kuyper said, Our heart is continually inclined to rebel against the Lord our God, so ready to rebel that oh so gladly were it but for a single day we would take from his hands the reins of his supreme rule, imagining that we would manage things far better and direct them far more effectively than God. It's what Jonah did, and it's what each one of us are prone to do on any given day as we consider the call of Christ on our life. This is why we push ourselves as a church to remain submitted to the Lord and committed to the scriptures and connected to each other in small groups and discipleship relationships. One of the graces that God has given us to fight for obedience is fellow believers who would see the tragic folly of our disobedience because if we're honest, we can rationalize our own tragic folly in disobedience and come up with a reason why it's okay for us to act this way. And so we need other believers who would see the tragic folly of our disobedience, rebuke us in our sins, and speak the truth in love to us so that we would repent once we are aware of our sinfulness and ask God for the grace to obey. 
And that's why we want to be a church that remains submitted to the Lord, that remains committed to the scriptures, and sees one another connected to each other in small groups and discipleship relationships. The easiest way to become Jonah-like in your attitude towards living for Christ is to try to live the Christian life on your own. Tragedy and folly follow those believers who resist active, healthy community in their life. There's no way around it. I can remember in... um, seminary at Baylor we were in class one time and we were talking about the need to read scripture in community and this is what I mean by tragic folly in our lives if we do all this by ourselves and our professor brought up the case of a guy he lived in in the upper midwest I want to say the Dakotas or Idaho somewhere where there's like 12 people total in the state and he so he was by himself because it's like well there ain't but like 15 other people around you so of course he read scripture by himself he studied scripture sun up to sun down And like is often the case, he got stuck in Revelation, which is never a good sign if you're by yourself and you just get hung up on Revelation. He had a small spot appear on his hand. Reading the Bible in isolation by himself, he began to think that that was the mark of the beast. Not just a skin condition that your doctor could heal, but the mark of the beast. So what does he do? He proceeds to cut his own hand off. Tragic folly because a guy lived his life in isolation trying to follow Jesus and understand scriptures outside of a committed body of believers. Over and over and over again, some of the people you know the best who have hurt you or others the most are those whose lives are marked by the tragic folly of believing that they can be obedient to the commands of Christ on their own. So we need each other. We need accountability. We need somebody who loves us enough to see our own tragic folly of disobedience and stop us from a road that ends in death. So Jonah provides, I think, for us, considering that above, I think Jonah provides two cautions for us as contemporary followers of Jesus. These are two, I would say, very subtle lies that we can believe That if we believe them long enough and live more in light of a lie than the truth, they will undermine our influence and effectiveness as those called and sent out by God to be ambassadors of reconciliation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. The first subtle lie or caution that we can take from the life of Jonah is this. We cannot assume that knowing about God means that we know the heart of God. Jonah knew about God. Jonah knew God's law. Jonah had spoken as a prophet on God's behalf to Israel before he was ever called to Nineveh. He had the boldness to go to Jeroboam, the king of Israel, and say, these are the words of God to you. He knew God. He had even heard in a way that we don't hear today. He had heard the audible voice of God give him words to say. 
Yet Jonah ran from God's call to go to Nineveh in part because he had a head filled with the knowledge of God. But he had failed to see the heart of God that the knowledge of God was meant to reveal. When we grow in our knowledge of God by reading the scriptures and by reading good outside spiritual formation books, as we grow in our knowledge of God, one of the ways we know we're growing in the right knowledge of God is if it's helping us understand the heart of God better. It is not enough to say we know God if we miss the heart of God in the process. This was the same issue with the scribes and Pharisees when Jesus was on the scene. A lot of guys who knew a lot about God and his law, but had no idea about the heart of a father who would call Abraham and promise to bless the nations through him. Jesus says in John 5, 39 through 40, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We face the same threat in our lives today. We can read a lot of scripture. We can read a lot of good theological books and we can meet in small groups and we can meet for discipleship and we can have heads crammed full of knowledge about God. And in the process, we can completely miss the heart of the God who sought us, redeemed us and commissioned us to live on mission for him. If we are growing rightly in our knowledge of God, it will lead us to a deepening love for both God and others. If you're growing rightly in your knowledge of God, it should lead you to be going to Jesus more, not stiff-arming him. Right knowledge of God always leads us to the Father's embrace. It never leads us to the accuser's chair. Right knowledge of God always ends with us having a better understanding of the heart of God. That's why we have the scriptures. The scriptures are not to be able to answer rhetorical questions about our faith. The scriptures are meant to give us a knowledge of who God is that would allow us in our sinfulness and in our finiteness to begin to understand the heart of God. The scriptures are not an end in themselves. The scriptures serve to help us better understand the God who inspired their writing. So we submit to the Bible, but we worship the Lord. We don't submit to the Lord and worship the scriptures. We submit to the scriptures with a posture of humility, with a posture of surrender, and with a posture of obedience so that our lives will be marked by worshiping the Lord. So we can't assume that just because we know God, we know the heart of the Father. Second thing is this. We cannot use past obedience as a means to justify present disobedience. Jonah had been obedient to the, God, to the call of God in the recent past. Jonah was not one who had ran around with a hard heart, not wanting to do what God had called him 
to do. He had been obedient. He had spoken favorable, merciful words to Jeroboam II and Israel when they should have experienced God's judgment and wrath. However, Jonah's past obedience and our past obedience is not meant to be a trump card that we hold back and play when the call of God on our life cuts against the grain of our understanding of how the world should work. We do not hold on to our past obedience as a means to create a smoke screen or an excuse for why we are going to live in present disobedience. Again, Jesus spoke of the need for ongoing obedience when he said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He doesn't say, if you love me, you will have kept them. He doesn't say, if you love me, you'll keep them every so often. The way that Jesus talks about how our love for him is displayed in keeping the commands is this idea of ongoing obedience. Not just obedience once, and then we can check that off our list, like, man, I've been obedient, now I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Jesus says, if you love me, there's going to be an ongoing obedience that marks your life as a healthy disciple. Obedience is a means by which we display our love for Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on this uh, section of Jonah, says, No past privilege, nor all past privileges together, no past obedience, nor fruitfulness in service, can ever substitute for present obedience to the Word of God. Are we able to point to, or do others routinely point to our life and see ongoing obedience to Christ when they talk about our walk with Jesus. I don't know how you grew up in church, but occasionally on Sunday nights, because I, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, and we're a Southern Baptist Church, but we do things a little differently. But when I grew up, you went Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday, and you didn't argue and you didn't complain, and it was like revival was a treat because you got to stay out late on a school night, but you still had to go to service. But occasionally on Sunday nights, especially if it was a fifth Sunday night, man, we would have a fifth Sunday night scene. I don't know if any of y'all grew up like that. But what would happen is at the end of that, sometimes there would be an opportunity for people to come up and share their testimony. And as we're preparing this, that's, what, that's all I could think of. I, I'm not here. This isn't me, theological snobbery, looking down my nose. Don't hear it that way. But what I was struck by is how everyone talked about their obedience to Jesus in the past. Always in the past tense. There's a point at which our testimony about who Jesus is and what he's done in our life better include some present tense obedience. If all we're ever doing is looking back to find the moments that we've been obedient We've got a real problem on our hands. In the moment, it can be hard to see our obedience for our own sinfulness. And sometimes it's hard to understand our obedience because our motives are mixed. But all I'm saying is, if you're meeting with someone for discipleship or you're in small group or you're plugged in somewhere with other believers then if someone dropped in unannounced and just asked how you are currently doing obeying Jesus, I would really hope that they had some present examples of where you were living obediently to the call of Christ. That they would not have to say, 
Well, I remember this one time. Hopefully they would say, yeah, it's pretty consistent as it can be day in and day out. So those, I think, are the two subtle lies that we can believe. First, that we would not assume that because we know about God, we know the heart of the Father. And second, we can't use past obedience as a means to justify present disobedience. So as we, as we close tonight, I want to revisit the first verse of Jonah chapter 1. The writer of the book tells us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And it is in Jonah's name that we find hope for ourselves. The SV Study Bible says as it regards Jonah's name, Jonah means dove, which is a symbol for Israel as silly and senseless. Hosea 7.11 says Ephraim is like a dove, silly and without sense, calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Jonah will be true to his name. He will be silly and without sense. Son of Amittai means son of my faithfulness. Jonah will remain the object of God's faithful love. So, too, we have proven to be silly and senseless in our lives. And yet, in and through the finished work of Christ, we have become objects, sons and daughters of God's faithful love. Let's pray.